Well, good morning. Welcome. Um, I'm excited to get to share with you all this morning. Dinah and Daryl uh, asked me to to share um, a couple of a month and a half or so ago, and I knew I'd be coming back from Singapore, and I'd probably be tired and a little bit um, jet-lagged and not quite together. So if I am, that's my perfunctory. If you don't like it, it's because I'm tired. Uh, you got to hedge your bets right up front, right? Um, but I wanted to do it because I love this passage of Scripture. Uh, this week, the title that, that they gave was The End of Magic. And we're going to read through a couple of plagues. And I know if you're here last week, uh, I wasn't here, but I'm imagining they did the other two plagues, the so walking through Exodus. Um, and, and like Ryan said, about a decade ago, I got embroiled in, uh, it makes it sound bad. Uh, it was sort of an embroiling. Um, I got connected to some people that had lived in Saudi Arabia and in the 80s and 90s, and they had, they had gotten connected with this idea that maybe Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula where there's zero threat of archaeological or historical evidence, and maybe it's somewhere else, like the northern portion of Saudi Arabia, which was their idea. And so I got involved in this, and if you Google that, Mount Sinai in Arabia, uh, you will find a bunch of stuff. Uh, and I'm not going to specifically go into that archaeology this morning, though I love it, and it's, it's fascinating. But during that period of time when I was just consuming the scripture, uh, consuming Exodus, consuming the geopolitics related to the Middle East, uh, related to what Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, what all of is going on in that part of the world today, it so meshes with 3,500 years worth of history. And it was just fascinating to me. And so as an end result, um, I guess I'm not at the end yet, uh, but Exodus got in me uh, in a remarkable way. And I began to discover that the Exodus is probably the first book of the Bible that was written. Probably. Now, the scholars are scholars, so nobody agrees with each other. Uh, and, but when the Israelites came out of Egypt, the first story that was most likely recorded was the story of their deliverance. And then they went back and wrote Genesis. And Genesis is an origin story, a creation narrative that we put chronologically in front of because it sort of tells the backstory of, of Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph that leads into the Exodus. But the Exodus narrative was one of the first things, probably the first thing that the ancient Hebrews said, we need to record what God did. We need to remember how God delivered us. So this morning we're going to talk about a process of deliverance because the Exodus story and the 10 plagues specifically that we're looking at here today, uh, plagues three and plagues four, what God is doing when he's coming into Egypt, he is delivering his people out of bondage. And the whole purpose of this, he says in Exodus six, when Moses meets the I am that I am at the burning bush and the Lord says to Moses, up until this point, your fathers have known me as El Shaddai, El God, Shaddai, who, the one who acts in mighty ways. Up until this point, he says to Moses, your fathers have known me as El Shaddai, which means the God who does mighty things. But I'm telling you today that I am that I am. And that's a really big moment because what God is saying is, look, Abraham, not Moses, Moses Abraham, your forefathers, they only knew about me and about what I did, the things that I did. But I'm coming to reveal to you who I am. 
It's this shift in the relationship between the Hebrews, the people of God, and God himself. He's saying, look, you don't have to just know about me anymore who does mighty good things. Now you get to know who I am. How many know there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing who that something is? I mean, who knows about the activity of the president? But who actually knows who the president is? Oftentimes in our culture, we equivocate that, which means that we make it the same thing. So we can see what somebody does, and we assume that because we know what they do, we know who they are. Now, granted, there's a strong correlation between your actions, your behavior, and your character. Those things are correlated, but they're not the same thing. And what God is doing in the Exodus is he's telling people, I am revealing to you who I am. So it's in this light that we approach these, the text here this morning. These are revelations of God's heart, his character, and his nature. And what he's doing is that he's taking the children out of Egypt, but he's also taking the Egypt out of the children. And so it's this dual component. So each one of the plagues specifically, I think, targets a god of Egypt. Every plague that God does targets a god, a ruling uh, principality or power, if you will, using some of the New Testament language, a ruling power in Egypt that held sway over the minds and the hearts of the people inside of Egypt. And so let's read the scriptures here this morning. I'll, uh, we'll just read through all of them and I'll unpack them as we go along the way. So this is, what is this, Exodus 8, something through something. I think we'll see at the end. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and on beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We'll jump ahead to plague nine or Exodus nine, plague four. So then they took suit from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Okay, so this story and there's two of them here, and we're going to really focus on Plague 3, but a little bit about Plague 4. Um, there's a story is that the magicians try and duplicate the activity of God, something that God was doing for the purpose of exposing the gods of Egypt, exposing the things behind the, um, behind the powers of Egypt. God was exposing that pulling the veil back and showing the Egyptians that they were false gods, that it was a false system. Let me talk to you about that. Plague number one, Nile to blood. Talked about that maybe last week. The Nile River was the economy of Egypt. If you haven't looked at a map, go look at a map, and you'll see brown desert and then little strip of green running straight up the Nile. 
Okay, nothing lived. They, they didn't have desalinization plants. Nothing lived in Egypt if it didn't get water from the Nile. The Nile was everything. And so when God, first thing he does when he comes to liberate his people out of bondage is that he starts dealing with the economic system that runs and controls the nation. It gets turned to blood, devastated. You can't use the Nile when it's blood. So he devastates the economic system to begin to show people something. Now, the Egyptians, they duplicate that miracle, right? And it's almost like when God comes to say, I'm your provider and I can pull you out. Don't have to, you don't have to trust in this economic system. You're not your provider. I'm your provider and I'll give you wisdom to produce wealth when you get into the promised land. Deuteronomy 17. When God comes and does that for us, we often are like, no, thanks, God, I got it. I invested in Apple. I'm good. We duplicate what God wants to give us, right? We do it for ourselves. God says, I want to pull you out of this system that's holding you in bondage. And we're like, no, no, thanks. I got it. I can do the same thing. You want to provide for me? Well, I'm pretty good at providing. Until the stock market comes crashing down under 20,000 and you lose everything, right? Not that the stock market is bad, but you're not your own provider. God is your provider. And he gives you the ability to produce wealth. And a lot of wealthy people, I mean, I just came back from Singapore, and that place is loaded. I mean, I've never been around so many, so many wealthy people in my life. There's trillions of U.S. dollars invested in Singapore. I had no idea. Um, but God gives some very unique strategies to his kids to produce wealth. I mean, that's a reality, and I met a number of them. So wealth is not bad. The economic system is not necessarily bad, but it's about who you're trusting in for that. And God is pulling people out of that in, in this plague. And then the second plague, the plague of frogs, the frog, is, the frog goddess was Heket. And she was the goddess of fertility. And fertility was an important thing because it was about the next generation. It was about if you had a firstborn male son in this culture, you had just given birth to a prized heir. The second born or females weren't given the same kind of stature. So people prayed if they weren't, if they didn't have children, they prayed to Heket so that they would bring forth a male son so that they could have the next generation. And so God comes and he begins to dismantle this. This next generation. How do you, how do you care for your legacy? How do you control your own womb? How do you control the giving forth of life in your own life for the next generation? And God wants to be our provider and show us the way to life and to show us the legacy that he can put in our lineage. But we're like, no, we got this. We can duplicate this. Now, we come to plague number three and we see a duplication, an attempt at duplication for this uh, miracle of God's or this I kind of think it's a power encounter, right? I mean, God is encountering and dismantling the powers that are holding Egypt. What I want to talk about, it says in the scriptures that, that, the, that the Egyptians could not duplicate it by their magic arts or their dark arts or their sorcery. Okay, I want to talk about that for a second. Scripturally, there's a, there's a few times in the Old and the New Testament when it talks specifically about sorcery or the activity of, of humans trying to use uh, fear and manipulation as they partner with demonic principalities or demonic spirits to get other people to do what they want them to do. 
me say that again. It's partnering with demonic spirits, which are real. Please read your New Testament if you don't believe that. Um, Partnering with demonic realities to use fear and manipulation to get other people to do what they want them to do. Now, we in our Western sensibilities, we don't really think that exists. Um, but we live, in a tiny, we live in a tiny white bubble over here. And in other parts of the world, not so much in Singapore, but quite a bit are in the surrounding areas in Indonesia and Malaysia. heard a lot of stories from a lot of people. Um, I sat next to this gal named Heidi Baker for 20, 30 minutes one evening after, after the, the conference, and we talked. Uh, and she told stories about living in Mozambique. And she told this one story about this guy who had these two puff adders, and he was the town shaman or the witch doctor. And he had these two puff adders, and he came in with these puff adders to kill her. And she told this story about how she loved on him and his wife. They both had leprosy. Um, and it's a remarkable story. And then there's this, I can't really tell the whole story, but it's this crazy story about how these serpents ended up jumping. She commanded them to, she dug a hole and she commanded the serpents to jump into this pit. Uh, and she lit a fire and killed the serpents. Um, and just had this power encounter with this witch doctor. And you may have heard the term witchcraft. And that phrase specifically scripturally refers to people who use partnering with demonic realities, partnering with them, empowered by the demonic, use fear and manipulation to get other people to do what they want them to do. And this is what the dark arts were. And this is what the magicians of Egypt were able to do. They were able to duplicate the Nile to blood. They were able to duplicate the frogs by partnering with demons to do that. And this raises an interesting question to me about fear and manipulation to get other people to do what you want them to do. Like I think about that just topically, and I think, hmm, that sounds a lot like the media. I'm not saying that the media is a bunch of witchcraft, okay? Um, There's a fine distinction here. Because witchcraft is using the demonic realities. So all witchcraft uses fear and manipulation, but not all fear and manipulation is witchcraft. Some of that's human, right? We, we, our culture, I think, in particular, thinks that the best way to get someone to do what it is that you want them to do is to make them afraid. I'm a dad of three small children. Come on, can I, any, any dads in here that know where I'm going? Angry daddy. Angry daddy can get stuff done. Polite requesting daddy. Please brush your teeth. Please brush your teeth. Brush your teeth. When I scare my kids, they do what I say. Right? And, and I'm having to learn another way. Uh, and my kids are also having to learn to respect not angry daddy. But that's a simple trite example. But our culture values fear, and manipulation. Because our culture wants us to do something. That's sort of anthropomorphizing culture. But there are, there are elements within culture that want us to believe a particular way. And when we believe a particular way, we'll do a particular thing or we'll vote in a particular fashion. And so if, if, if this culture, if this spirit that wants to 
fill us with fear and control and manipulation. If they can get us to think and believe a particular way, they can get us to do what it is that they want us to do. And I think that it's terribly important right now in particular, but this is all throughout humanity, that we understand that we are the subject of billions and trillions of dollars worth of marketing and spin and fear and manipulation to try and get us to believe and think and do particular things. And this is what was going on in Egypt. This is what the system of the gods were. All these deities inside of Egypt. One deity was the one in control of the Nile, Canum. Another deity was in control of fertility. Another deity was actually the sun himself, the fullness of God, raw incarnate on the earth, Pharaoh. Right? This whole system was built to make people afraid of the gods so that they would do what the ruling class wanted them to do. Witchcraft, fear, and manipulation. And I think it's important that you ask yourself, not from a place of fear, but from a place of faith. As believers in Jesus, people that are empowered with the Spirit of God, we are uniquely positioned by God in the kingdom not to just resist the manipulation and the fear that comes at us from culture, but to actually push it back. And this is what God came to do in Egypt, to push back on the system that held people in fear and to dismantle it and to liberate his children. So how does God today push back? Like what is a tool um, that God uses to push back on fear, control, and, and manipulation? Let me answer that in just a second. How do you guys get other people to do what you want them to? Think about that. You don't have to raise your hand and tell me. Just think about it. Be honest with yourself here this morning. How? Just think about one circumstance at work and one circumstance at home. How do I get other people to do what it is that I want them to do? Do I come straight to them and say, honey, could you please X, Y, Z? Or do I passive aggressively, you know, drop hints or make comments about how it never really gets done and kind of go. Do you go behind coworkers' backs telling on the upper management, try and get them to move out? Or they, you know, maybe the person in the cubicle next to you chews their gum too loudly. So instead of saying, excuse me, your lip smacking is really annoying to me. Maybe you do another tactic, right? Because God forbid we have direct, honest, vulnerable communication with one another. We have all these tactics that we employ to get others to do what we want. Most of them, because not a lot of systems train us and show us how to have healthy, direct communication. We have all these other tactics to do an end around. Passive aggressive in the workplace is my least favorite. I hate it. Like, I would rather you just come and yell at me than do your little passive-aggressive thing. Because I'm fine if you and me aren't good, but I'm not fine if I don't know that you and me aren't good. Like, that drives me crazy. So how does God 
get people to do what he wants them to do. Hopefully not the same way that we do. I don't believe that God, actually I know that God does not use fear and manipulation to get something out of his kids. What did God do so the world would know that he's God? Well, God, who so loved this world, he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, God did not come into this world to judge the world. He came into this world to save the world. John three sixteen and 17. God's powerful free choice to love people and let them choose is a demonstration of something that is in God's heart. And, and the Exodus is this picture, right? Do you see some of these correlations? I'm doing this a lot with the Exodus and the work of Jesus and the finished cross thing. So God doesn't need fear and manipulation. His love is his power, and that's more powerful than any witchcraft or any fear and manipulation of the world system. I'm the vice president of a marketing agency in town. And um, we never use fear and manipulation. That's ad agencies. I'm a marketing person. <laughs> we tell compelling messages that are truthful about a product. And if you have a crummy product, well, you know, come to market with a better product. But telling the truth, telling compelling messaging that's true doesn't need fear and manipulation. Doesn't need all the all the creepy, what I consider to be creepy Madison Avenue kind of advertising psychology to get people to trick them into drinking things that will kill their bodies. Like, we, can, we, we tell compelling stories about products and messages that are true. Now, whether you like it or don't like it, you have to make that own determination. But one of the ways that God wants to tell compelling stories and true stories is something that he's done all throughout scripture. And there are people in the, in the text that, that are called and identified as prophets in the Old Testament. And these prophets came with a word from the Lord to speak to the people, the heart of the Father. And God gave them his heart and he said, go speak this to people. In the New Testament, that role's a little bit different, but there still is the people of God speaking the heart of the Father in front of the world. We call it, prophesying or the prophetic sometimes that word freaks people out uh it's a biblical new testament word it's a reality today that god will show you sometimes it's ahead of time god will show you ahead of time something that's happening so that you can live into it john 14 15 and 16 when jesus teaches them about the holy spirit in john 16 one of my favorite passages He's telling them all that he's going to die and be resurrected and all this stuff. And they're freaking out because he's going to leave and he's going to go to the father's house. And Philip goes like, oh, hey, Lord, I don't know where you're going. He's like, Philip, I'm going to my dad's house, but I'm coming back for you. And then he says this. He says, I've told you all of these things ahead of time so that when they happen, you know that it was me. That's a prophetic word that Jesus gives to his disciples, not so they can make it happen, but so that they know that when it does, that it was really Jesus. And I imagine that was a big deal after he was crucified and buried and they're alone crying, weeping, afraid of the Jews, locked in the upper room. Maybe someone remembered, didn't Jesus tell us about this? Maybe we shouldn't be so afraid. 
That's one way a prophetic word is used. About two and a half, three years ago, I was, uh, I was working as a pastor on staff at Riverside, the sister church here of Alamo Heights. was um, doing a lot of stuff here at Alamo Heights. But I've been working in the church for about a decade. And um, I began to feel like God was calling me out of the church and into the business world. I had an experience in Israel where I was standing on the Bema with this guy over here in Gamla. And I felt like the Lord said, I'm calling you out of the synagogue, out of the church, into the world. And it began to sort of, like, it got planted in me, and it sort of got started taking root. But I, I didn't know how to do it. You know, all I ever knew how to do was, man, I could sell stuff, and I mean, you have to be a good salesman to be a pastor. Um, <laughs> but about two and a half years ago, I met this guy uh, at my gym at Sonterra up north, and uh, the Lord just kind of put him on my heart. He was a big, kind of awkward fella, and the Lord just kind of put him on my heart. And after a couple of months of talking to him, I felt like the Lord said to me, you need to go and work for him, because when he gets into politics, I need you to help run his company. And I was like, sounds nice running a company. You know, I'm a worship pastor running a company. Maybe that's a pay increase, Lord. And so that sat in me for a couple of months. And it got stronger and stronger. And I began to realize that I, that I needed to speak this word out to this guy. And I was most certainly not going to tell him, God told me that. When I was a young worship leader, girls would come up to me all the time. And they would say, God told me that we were going to get married. And I was like, well... I don't know, want to have dinner? Uh, it's kind of a big jump from I don't know you to God told me. Um, sometimes that can be used awkwardly. Uh, but about a year, about two years ago, I felt like the Lord said, it, it's time to tell this guy. So I asked him to breakfast, and, and he's, he's the founder and owner of a, of, of a marketing company. And uh, I took him to breakfast, and I looked him straight in the face, and I just said, you need to hire me so that when you get into politics, I can help run your company. I didn't take out an ad on Monster. Didn't surf Indeed for resumes. I, I said that straight to his face. And he looked at me and he's like, how do you know I want to get into politics? I said, I hear things. <laughs> and I realized that was vague enough to be weird. And then I, I covered for myself. I said, you talk a lot in the gym, which he does. And he said, that's interesting because last night, one of the high-ranking officials of a local um, political party was at my house asking me to get involved in city politics. And last night at 11 o'clock, I told my wife that I couldn't do it because I didn't have anyone to help me with my company. Three weeks later, he hired me. And... I've been working in that company for the last two and a half years. The prophetic word, when you speak it out, I didn't call his friends to try and see if I could get a meeting with him. I didn't try and manipulate that. I didn't try and tell him, you know, I mean, I could have done my due diligence and said, look, this is a problem with your organization. I could have come in and laid it out with a Gantt chart 
and said, here, there's projected five-year growth. You need me to help run it because look at what I can see or make him afraid that his thing was going to fall apart without me. I didn't need to do any of that. I spoke with direct communication the thing that I knew that God had told me. I didn't even have to say God said or Jesus loves you. Like, they all know that Jesus loves them now because I live there and I work there. And I don't tell them Jesus loves you. But my life is a testimony of that. So that prophetic word that God put in me, when God speaks something, how many know that when he speaks it, there's power attached to it that is not available in the world? When God says that it's true, it will come to be. And a lot of times he's looking for friends and partners to agree with heaven and to speak that out in the world. And there is an available source of power and truth in your life that you will be, when you learn how to partner with the voice of God through the heart of the Father, when you learn how to partner with that and speak that out and act on that in your work life, in your home life, there is power that is available. And you don't have to use passive-aggressive fear, control, and manipulation. And God forbid that we would ever partner with a non-Holy Spirit spirit to get done what we want to get done. There's power associated with the Word of God. So my boss did get into politics, and now I'm helping run the company about a year and a half later. And God led me into something that I I never dreamed that I would be a part of. But he did it with faith and hope and love with a prophetic understanding that he gave me about something that was coming. And this brings us, we're wrapping, oh boy, uh, this brings us to plague number three. I'm going to talk about this for a moment, and we'll, we'll wind it down. Plague number three, if you can bring up that first picture. This is a god named Soapdew, and this is a gilt. It's kind of squished, but um, this is a bird, uh, and it's a gilt bird covered, covered in gold, and it was found in a place called Serebit el Chadim. Actually, it was not found in Serebit el Chadim. It was found in King Tutankhamun's tomb. King Tut, famous guy. So this was a god that in, in the Sinai Peninsula, at a place called Serbit el Chadim, in the southern portion of the Sinai, had a grotto to Sopdu. And Sopdu was the god of the eastern desert. And Sopdu was a little bit terrifying because, if you can, can you go to the next slide? If you picture Egypt here, like at the very top up there, the top left up by the, the vent, that's, um, that's the Nile Delta region where uh, Goshen was, where the Israelites lived and much of the, um, the Egyptian people lived. Uh, but that middle portion there, can you guys see the Sinai Peninsula? Do you know enough geography to see Sinai without me jumping up there? So the eastern desert was a place that very typically these massive sandstorms would come blowing through the eastern desert from across. This one's a little bit south, uh, but you can see this NASA picture of the sandstorm that's blowing in from Saudi Arabia into Egypt. And a lot of times they blow in from the east across the Sinai Peninsula into the people. And so the grotto to Sopdu, the god of the eastern desert, was likened to these terrifying sandstorms that would come blowing in from the eastern desert. Okay, so hold that. When, when God tells Aaron, I think it's Aaron, to take his staff and to have all the dust turn into gnats. Anyone been to Egypt? No one. Yes. Is it dusty in Egypt? Yes, it's dusty. And it's dusty. Imagine God turning all of this massive sandstorm, a dust cloud, into gnats. The reality, the epic reality of that. But there's something important here, is that God was getting ready to lead the the children out of Egypt 
through the eastern desert. But there was a God that lived in the wilderness that was a terrifying God. So what does God do to demonstrate to the children that he can take care of them and to demonstrate to the Egyptians that he's more powerful than their system? He breathes life into the dust. Think about that. They get turned into gnats, but he breathes life into the dust. He breathes life into the wilderness, into the chaos of the eastern desert. God is saying, I can bring life into the dust, into the chaos of the wilderness. The magicians were able to duplicate the economic system and the legacy and the fertility of their wombs. But when God starts turning life out of dust, they hold up their hands and say, this has to be God. And this is the tragedy of doing it yourself. Because if you try and manipulate and control God to get your own way in your life, you can duplicate some of it and take care of your your money and you can take care of your womb even and your legacy. But at some point, when you throw up your hands and say, God, I need you to bring life out of the dead parts of me, that is when the world will look at your life and say, isn't God working in you? Do you want to rob the world of the testimony of God's power in your life by trying to do it all yourself? The Lord will let you. But he wants to bring life into the wilderness of your life. Because sometimes he leads us into the wilderness and he needs us to know that he's there. Now my boss, who got into politics... So the end of that story is that um, the politics, I thought it was going to be like local politics. I mean, what I heard came true. I thought it was going to be local politics, but it wasn't. My boss was the national digital director for the Trump presidential campaign, and he is the digital guru that people across the nation have said this was the guy who was instrumental in getting Trump elected. And I worked on that presidential campaign for about four months um, before the presumptive nomination. I made 80 percent of the social media content. For the president, now president, um, and I, I ended up in a wilderness in a very chaotic environment. I thought it was going to be like, you know, county commissioner or something. President of the United States, right? And now statistically, half of you want to get up and walk out, and the other half of you now want to take me to lunch, <laughs> right? And I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking God told me something because, believe me, I have thought many times In the last 18 months, I'm going to die in this desert. This is craziness. Do I even believe? Am I working for Pharaoh? Is this God? Is it not? How on earth could all of this chaos in our nation be happening? I could tell you so many stories about prophetic truths and things that God spoke that I watched happen behind the scenes on the campaign and from other people around the nation. And this is not an endorsement for a particular candidate or president. What I'm telling you is that God wants to breathe life into the chaotic, dusty wilderness of your life. And he wants to breathe life into the chaotic, dusty wilderness of our nation. And I'm watching him do it. And the world will stand up and say, this has to be God. But what God is asking for is for his children to partner with him. To learn the voice of heaven and not just try and do it themselves. 
to stop trying to use fear and manipulation and control to understand. How many people are confused by the current political state of our nation? Confused, angry, upset. Like, it is hard to understand what is going on. You read the fake news, right? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's false? How do we know what the president's intentions are? What is Russia doing? What about all this other social justice stuff that's... There are so many complex problems, but there are answers and there are solutions. But I submit to you that part of what God is asking of his body and the church has to lead it because we're the ones who are actually filled with this spirit and equipped to do it. We need to be saying, all right, God, what are you doing? I'm, I can't duplicate this. I can't run my own show. I don't even know what to believe anymore. God, what are you telling me? Learn how to hear from heaven. Learn how to be in community of people who are hearing from heaven. And take what you hear and test it in the light of the character and the nature of God as you understand him. Test it in the light of scriptures. But it's very important that we learn how to hear from heaven because we're in a chaotic wilderness space and God really is breathing life into the wilderness. The team would come back up. I believe uh, prophetically that the Lord is, um, I mean, and this isn't much of a great prophetic word, uh, the Lord is desperate. He's not desperate. He's passionate to get a hold of your heart so that you are not being tossed about in this chaotic time. And it's not just about coming to church and believing in Jesus for your salvation, which is absolutely vital. But the Lord is wanting to grab a hold of your heart and begin to show you things about yourself and about this nation. He wants to show you what he's doing. Maybe he wants to break your heart for the issue that makes you so angry. I'm telling you, if you'll spend some time and pursue and just say, God, I don't know about this issue. I get angry, I get scared, I then get on Facebook and I turn into a mean person and I write all kinds of rude comments to my friends that I used to like but now I can unfriend them and unfollow them and I lost friends because I'm so angry. Like that's not partnering with the Spirit of God. That is another spirit that wants to pull you out of connection and relationship to God and to your family and friends. But he has a solution for the anxiousness and the fear that gets stirred up in you. Maybe you're the one that has the answer to the problem. But I would just invite you here this morning um, as, we, as we do a response song. If you need to go, you're welcome to go. We went a little bit long here today, but we'll do a response song and I'll close the service. But I want to ask you if you'd sit in this space for a minute and just ask him. Connect up. Is there a place where you're afraid and you think you may be using control or manipulation to try and grab onto that and just say, God, show me, talk to me. And don't give up asking that question if you don't immediately hear something. It takes time to cultivate a relationship in a new way if you've not done that before. So let's just take a couple of moments and sit in that. So living God, I just I agree with the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would fill our hearts and our minds here right now, God, with a new measure of peace and a place of fear and anxiety, God. And I ask, Father, that, that your life would begin to breathe into the dust and the chaos 
of whatever it is in our minds, in our lives, whether it's a political thing or an economic thing or a relational thing at home or just a heart thing about who we are. God, I ask that you would speak life into that dusty place right now in Jesus' name.